What a wonderful blessing for us to be together on the first of the week. God certainly has been good to us. He's been gracious to us through the week. We can certainly recognize that. We're thankful for all who are here with us in presence today, for many who are online with us, and we're prayerful and hopeful that the, the, the feed will hold for those who are online with us. We thank you for tuning in with us. We are prayerful that this will be edifying for you. Our desire as we come together is to uh, build one another up, stir one another up through love and good works, and to edify one another through the power of his word. We want to glorify and worship him, and that's the reason we come together. And we're thankful that you're together with us today. This morning I want to talk about, this afternoon, I want to talk about what may be a delicate subject sometimes. Uh, it's probably a good time of year to talk about modesty, since none of you will think I saw you somewhere and now I'm preaching at you specifically. It's good to talk about these kind of things always. The world is always presenting to us the world's idea of how we ought to present ourselves. And oftentimes the world's idea of how we ought to present ourselves has nothing to do with the way that God believes we should be presenting ourselves. And this issue of modesty and immodesty comes up quite often on our television screens, on billboards, and when we're out in the street. We want to make sure that we're upholding what God's desire is for us. We want to be showing forth His glory in our lives and not some glory that is uh, temporary or carnal. And so I'd like for us to look together at this incident that happens with Noah and his sons as they've come off the ark and begun to repopulate the earth. And we see that there's a context here. And I want to talk about some observations from the context of the cursing of Canaan. This is a strange kind of a text for us. We don't think about blessings and cursing so much anymore today, but certainly in the book of Genesis there are several passages where the father, acting sort of as father and priest, this is before the Mosaical law, this is a time of the patriarchy, where the father acting as father and priest pronounces a blessing on the future generations, or sometimes, in this case, a cursing on the future generations because of something that happens. Now, the full context of these events really takes place in Genesis 6 through 9, the story of Noah and the ark. So Noah, this just man, has been saved from the flood along with his family, and then two of most types of animals, seven of some of the, the clean animals. We see that, that account for us in Genesis 6, chapter 1 through 8, verse 19. And so here is a good man, and he's managed to convince seven other members of his family to go with him on the ark. And we're told he was a preacher of righteousness, that obviously he was trying to have others uh, come onto the ark, but they ridiculed what he was saying. So God has protected Noah and his family through this ark, through this, this experience in the ark. And when they leave the ark, Noah begins right away in chapter 8, starting at verse 20, he begins acting as a father priest for the family. I want to read verses 20 through 22 of, of chapter 8, and we just get this picture of Noah acting as a priest. He's offering sacrifice to God on behalf of his family here. Genesis 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God pronounces a blessing on Noah as he's offered up this, uh, this offering of thanksgiving as they've come off the ark. God has remembered them, and Noah has remembered God, and he's remembered them on behalf of his whole family. So the first part of chapter 9 down through verse 17 is more offerings and more promises from God 
as this new earth unfolds before Noah, as he comes off the ark and the earth has been cleansed by the flood, and they're given basically a new opportunity. It's a new Eden, if you will. It's just them. It's this family in the presence of God, and the whole earth and the fullness of it is theirs. What we're looking at here are some events in chapter 9 now that happened before Moses' law. So the things that we're going to be seeing here are governed by God's generic laws. These are things that God wants for every generation. In our class in Acts today, we talked about some of those things that God had handed down from the beginning of creation, that he reiterated in the law in a specific way for the Jews, but that he expects to continue through till today as part of his laws that govern creation. And so we'll be looking at some of these things that, that were present from already in Genesis 3, after the fall, but now in this world that, that Noah is inheriting. And one of the things we need to consider as we look at this is that we need to always understand whatever's being taught in its specific context. And, a, and an exercise I like to do, especially when I'm reading through the historical text, is I like to place myself where they are. Where, where was David when this happened, and how much did he know? How much of the Bible had been revealed up to that point? He couldn't have known some of the things I know that came later, what was he acting on? What did he know at that point? What did Noah know at this point? What kind of things would he have understood? We talked in a lesson uh, a couple weeks ago about the fact that Adam may have been able to hand these things down all the way down to Noah's father, that these people lived long lifespans and would have lived together in some sense. They would have been able to hand this information down. They didn't have a written law yet. Romans 1 says they had a law of God written on their hearts, but they actually had specific law that was handed down from perhaps Adam all the way from the garden. So what does Noah know so far? Well, he does know something about covering the body. He does know something about indecency or immodesty because God has already spoken to that. This is a universal question. And ever since sin came in, we only had Adam and Eve on earth, and yet God covered their bodies after their sin in Genesis chapter 3. And so the rest of the generations didn't walk around naked and unashamed as Adam and Eve had done in the garden, but the other generations walked around clothed, and uh, no one knows that. So we're talking about here life just after the flood, and we began looking at verses 18 through 20. We've got the situation of Noah and his sons who've come out. They're going to repopulate the entire earth. They were given uh, a blessing by God when they came off of the ark, that is a very parallel blessing to what we saw when God made Adam and Eve in the garden, that they should be fruitful and multiply, that they should repopulate and fill the earth. It's the same thing said in Genesis 9-1 that had been said in Genesis 1 and verse 28. We also see right in this context that Noah continues this necessary work of bringing forth sustenance from the ground. He becomes a worker of the soil. I like the way uh, Luke's reading was. Mine says he became a farmer, but he's a, a worker of the soil. And in that work, he planted a vineyard in Genesis 9 and verse 20. What we see from the curse back in Genesis 3, once sin came in, God told Adam he was going to have to work the soil. So Noah is going to continue doing this. Genesis 3 verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have eaten the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 2, that Cain also became a tiller of the ground. He began to work the soil. This is what you do. In an earth that's been cursed, you've got to produce your own food. God had given them sort of a new paradise, a start over after the flood, 
yet they had to continue the work. They're not in the garden. They're in something that resembles the garden in a certain aspect, but it's not the garden. They've got to continue the work. What we see here, though, is a parallel. We see Noah sort of in this idyllic paradise right after Eden. And so we see him looking a lot like Adam. <laughs> he has got to fill the earth as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. He's got to work the earth as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. And so we get this parallel that's showing our return to God's will and his way. It starts off great when they first come off the ark. But then we see that Noah has made this vineyard and he's drinking from the wine of his vineyard and becomes drunk. There's this indiscretion that happens here. There's this sin. Indiscretion is a pretty word for sin. Noah became drunk. This is the first mention of drunkenness in the Bible. It's interesting that right away in their new world, sin has already reared its head. Way before the law was ever written, the Mosaic law, the abuse of alcohol is always shown negatively. This is the first count of it. In Genesis 19, I'm not going to read the text there, but verses 30 through 38, the beginning of the Ammonites and the Moabites came about when Lot's daughters got him drunk and had children with him after Lot's wife had turned into a pillar of salt for looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah. There's drunkenness involved in that particular account as well, and it always is shown negatively, the abuse of alcohol. There's never a time that the Bible encourages the use of alcohol for anything other than people who need it for medicinal purposes. And the truth is, Drunkenness is a form of dissipation. In fact, that's the word that's used in the New Testament. It's caused by the breakdown or the fermentation of natural sugars that occur on the, on the grape, that those break down into alcohol. And it's something that would only be possible in the world following the corruption that is brought on by sin. The Jews understood, and uh, I'll get a, a confirmation of this later from Judy, uh, but the Jews understood that there was this dissipation, that this, this corruption in alcohol. And so they wouldn't invite alcohol into a wedding ceremony. They wouldn't invite alcohol into something that was meant to be sacred and sanctimonious. And certainly God has always presented alcohol as a form of dissipation. In Romans chapter 8 verses 20 through 22, Paul talks about the way the world is after sin. And this is part of what's in the world after sin. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's part of the corruption that's in it. It's part of these birth pangs. It's part of what's destroying creation is this dissipation. And alcohol is a perfect picture of that because that's what's going on in the abuse of alcohol. And so it's no mistake that the cursing of Canaan is seen in the light of this context. You have indecency, immodesty, and abuse of alcohol wrapped together here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 reminds us about the way that God has presented these things in the Bible for us. And we'll see this again in, in Romans in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's not like this was written so Noah would learn from what happened here. He learned from what happened. It was written down, specifically registered for us, so that we would learn from what happened with Noah and his indiscretion. Why, why include this account? There was surely a lot of things that Noah did. There were a lot of other things. God included this so we would learn something from it. That's exactly why it's here. It was written down for our learning. 
So Noah became drunk from the wine of his vineyard, and as he was drunk, he became uncovered. Uh, there's a possibility from the language that he uncovered himself in the tent. He did that perhaps consciously or unconsciously. But the result of his sin, then, is parallel to what Adam and Eve had done. When they sinned, they became uncovered before the Lord. Sin leaves man uncovered before God. Genesis 3, 7 he said, I was afraid because I was naked. His eyes were open and he recognized his nakedness. And then he told the Lord he hid behind the trees because he realized he was uncovered. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. There's none of us who's not open to the eyes of the one who's going to judge us. We have to give account for our, for our nakedness. We're uncovered before God because of our sin. I want to suggest to you that it is the character of a drunk mind. And I use that word intentionally. The non-sober mind is the character of a, of a drunk mind to become uncovered. The world seduces us into dissipation. We want to be like the world around us. It makes us more comfortable when we can be like the world around us. It's not really our heart's desire. Our heart's desire is to serve the Lord. But there's this pull. We're here in the flesh, and the flesh has these pulls. We're desiring to be with God in the Spirit, and there's a pull there as well. We've got to nurture that and make that be the pull that, that talks louder to us. The world seduces us to dissipation. That's what happened as the serpent beguiled Eve and told her, you're not really going to die. God's hiding things from you. Don't you see how beautiful this tree is? Isn't it, doesn't it look like it's a refreshing fruit to eat? You know it'll make you wiser than God? The world seduced Eve into dissipation. In 1 Peter chapter 4, that's the way Peter describes the world that we're in and the temptations that accost us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, I think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. All these things are things of corruption. Yet we can recognize there's been a seduction by the world toward us. To participate in these things. He says you did these things in the past, but that was enough time. Don't do that anymore. You've been called to something better, something in which there is no dissipation, which is why I love the use of this word in Ephesians chapter 5. And here Paul is giving us something better to consider. I think it's a beautiful passage to think about this question. The sober mind versus the mind that's given into dissipation. Ephesians 5 verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a, there's a contrast here, and it's kind of a play on words. Don't be filled with spirits, alcoholic spirits, in which there's dissipation. Those are going to cause corruption. Be filled with the Spirit. Be so filled with the Spirit that it gives you life. <laughs> Instead of corruption, you're being filled with life through the Spirit. And then the text talks about how to do that. You speak with one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks always to the Lord. There's great ways to be filled with the Spirit. And it's not these carnal things that the world offers. The drunken mind will become uncovered by sin. And then by the seduction that's in the world will produce more seduction <laughs> physically and spiritually. So we must act with sobriety. We must act out of a serious mind, a conscious mind, toward this issue of modesty and sensuality. It's interesting how immodesty and dissipation always walk hand in hand. 
They're together, this lewdness and lust that were there with these drinkings and revelries. It's interesting that Noah's final account in the Bible register, not, not counting Hebrews, which tells us more of the story, but his final account, if we're just to read the historical register of Noah, this is it. This is where it ends, to his shame. <laughs> we think of Noah, we think of the ark. We think of the great work he did in, in bringing eight souls upon that ark. But the last thing we're told about him is he was found naked in his tent and had to end up cursing his own son because of what he did. Let's not be following that example. Now, what happened here? This is a strange situation we've already pointed out. It says that Ham saw the nakedness of his father, and he went and told his brothers outside the tent. What exactly does that mean? It's one thing to see something. It's quite another thing altogether to contemplate that thing you have seen. In the context, when we look at verses 23 and 24, we saw that Shem saw something, uh, that, uh, that Ham saw something, went out and told his brothers. Shem and Japheth went in with their faces turned and carrying some kind of a garment backwards over their shoulders so they didn't have to see their father. They knew he was in there naked, as Ham had reported. And it says when Noah woke up, he realized what his son had done to him. There's something in the contemplating of his nakedness that violated something that belonged to Noah. This was more than just mere seeing. There is some kind of contemplation here. And not only that, upon contemplating his father's nakedness, Ham then publicized it. I don't have to tell you that there is an overpublication of nakedness in our society. All you have to do is turn on a computer. It's overpublicized. You don't even need to do that because you turn on a television. You don't need to do that because you walk down the street. People are publicizing what God considers to be naked all around us. And unfortunately, that's what influences our children as they're growing up. And they think, well, that's not naked. Naked is when I'm taking a shower. <laughs> no. What God calls naked is way beyond what you consider naked. And it's being publicized instead of covered up. The brothers covered the nakedness of their father rather than publicizing it. Proverbs 17 and verse 9 is interesting in this context. And something we ought to consider when we think about indecency and immodesty. Proverbs 17 and verse 9, certainly this is in the context of any sin. He who covers a transgression seeks love. What were uh, Shem and Japheth doing? They loved their father. They were seeking to cover up his sin and his indiscretion. Love covers a multitude of sins. This is a literal account of someone covering the sin of another. Second part of that verse says, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. He who publicizes a sin causes division. What should we do when we find ourselves involved in sin? Should we go out and publicize it? When we find that someone else, one of our brothers, is involved in sin, should we just publicize it? No. We ought to help them to repent and to cover it up to the honor of Christ that should be seen in them and to maintain their dignity and honor. Now, if it's something they choose to publicize on their own, then two or three of us should go together and work with them on that. We try to get them to repent. That's the way Jesus teaches. But here, Ham publicized the nakedness of his father, his shame. Shem and Japheth covered it up. There's something we see in this. Our bodies were not made to be admired for their physical beauty. Now, the Creator is an excellent Creator, and He's made our bodies in a certain way to be beautiful. And they ought to be attractive to our spouse. But that's who it's for, and that's it. 
They're not made to be admired for their physical beauty, but that's what we see is this cult of beauty, both for men and women. This is not a one-sided argument. This is the case of a man being naked. And we typically think of, well, it's women who are exposed. Men can be exposed. In this case, it was. In fact, what we learn in the text is that God wanted men to be covered. We'll find this out later when he talks about the priesthood. We'll see that in a moment. There was an argument the Corinthians made. Well, the stomach is for foods and foods are for the stomach. That was an argument they were making about, well, the body was made to be sexual, so we ought to just take advantage of that. But Paul said, no. It's God who's going to judge how you use that. There is a function that's made for the stomach to eat, but if you're a glutton, God will judge gluttony. The bodies were made as sexual bodies. But that's to be used within the, the blessing of marriage, and God will judge those who abuse sexuality outside of marriage. And not just the sexual act, but the sensuality and the lewdness and the lust and the indecency that come from overexposing the body or from publicizing overexposed bodies or from contemplating overexposed bodies. Our bodies were meant for serving God, and we need to maintain that. Always, with sins of sensuality and immorality, there is no one who is guiltless. Sometimes it's said, well, if he can't keep his eyes to himself, I can't be to blame for that. No. What if you're causing your brother to stumble by the way you're dressed? What if you're causing your sister to stumble by the way you act, the advances you make that may be innocent in your eyes, but in some way are leading someone to something that is not so innocent. In Habakkuk 2, we get these ideas, and this is almost exactly what we see in the case of Noah. Habakkuk 2, obviously no one induced Noah to this. But look what Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Think that was a problem in Israel? <laughs> Habakkuk thought it was. God thought it was. People seducing others, the dissipation of the world with these prurient interests in mind, with sensuality and lewdness as, as an end game. In Matthew chapter 5, this is a text perhaps we know much more clearly, but look at the issue. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 29, You've heard it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. I have to be careful about what I'm contemplating. To be careful about how I'm seducing the world because I've been seduced by the world. But Luke 17.1 puts the onus even further. Not just on what I'm contemplating, but Luke 17.1 speaks of the problem of what I'm offering, whether that's my intent or not. It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. If my attitude is, he just needs to control his eyes better, or she just needs to understand better that I'm not really making advances, my problem is with me. <laughs> I better not be causing offenses by my attitude, by my actions, by the way I present myself in some lewd and moral manner. We've got to be careful about these things. Shem and Japheth took this garment. They held it backwards, walked backwards. They did everything they could to avoid seeing their father's nakedness. God covered Adam and Eve when they had sinned. Shem and Japheth have followed after what God taught, not what the world would teach. They didn't follow after what Ham was doing, whatever 
He did. However, he contemplated his father's nakedness to his father's shame and to his own shame. Shem and Japheth did not. They understood the need to cover the nakedness of their father. They went to lengths to avoid sin. It's interesting the detail that we're told about. That. I mean, this short account here, we're given more detail about what they did than almost anything else. How they walked backwards and turned their face away and they made sure to cover their father so they could preserve themselves, their father, any others. There are women in this account. You've got Noah's wife and their three wives. We're not told where they are, but they could also stumble across Noah uh, naked in his tent. Shem and Japheth have taken care of that issue to make sure that no one else stumbles. 1 Peter 4, uh, we read earlier about the idea of dissipation. Just a short distance beyond that, 1 Peter 4, 8 says this, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We already spoke about that from the Proverbs, but that's this idea. Because they loved everyone else, including Ham, they did what they could to protect that indecency. Noah messed up, but they didn't say, well, that's his sin, it's on him. They covered it up as quickly as they could to protect the others who were around. Sometimes our attitudes are just so flippant about sensuality, about immodesty, about sobriety. And we need to be more like God, more like Shem and Japheth here, seeking to great lengths to protect others from these things that are out there. Certainly those in our own family, but our own hearts that can be affected by the dissipation that's in the world if we become involved in these things. And so the result of what happened here is the cursing of Canaan. This is not just Noah speaking out in anger. There's some prophecy here. He is the father and priest. When he becomes sober again, then he speaks out about what happened. I'm not going to go into the reading of these genealogies in chapter 10, but the cursing that, that Noah lays down here on Ham's sons includes the Babylonians, certainly an accursed people, the Ninevites, certainly an accursed people. The Philistines, certainly an accursed people. This curse goes generationally after Noah lays this down. Very specifically in verses 15 through 20, Ham's sons through Canaan include all the Canaanite tribes. The Sidonians. Remember who was a Sidonian princess? Jezebel. <laughs> she was a Sidonian. She was certainly an accursed person. All of the tribes that God later would reject and spew out of the promised land, all of those tribes were sons of Ham. This curse was long-lasting. Something interesting about the reasons God cursed those people and sent them out. They were all involved in sensual idolatry. We'll see that in just a moment more clearly. But Noah, as father and priest in this patriarchal era, he revealed God's curse and his blessing on future generations, but the curse was on Ham, the blessing on Shem and Japheth. Noah was revealing this as God's will. What's important to notice about this is that this cursing that came down was a direct response, a direct result of the things that had transpired before. Noah re references back to that about what Ham had done to him. And that's the reason for this cursing. Remember I mentioned before there's a parallel here. We're seeing this sort of second beginning. Just like Adam and Eve had a new beginning after the garden. We see that he began the work and we see the, they're, they're filling the world. We see Noah doing this. But in this parallelism, parallelism here, the sin of Adam brought a curse on his world. And God then revealed how that was going to be. That's what he was talking about in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The toil that he would have to work in, the sweat of his face and that he would return 
to the ground that he was taken from. When Ham sinned, God revealed what was going to happen to Ham's world, to the future generations of this, this man. And it's a clear parallel to what we saw early on as well. Because of what Ham did, Noah then revealed the future state of his descendants. And as I mentioned, the Canaanites were notorious for sensual idolatry, something that God expressly prohibited in Israel. In Leviticus chapter 18, as he's setting the Israelites apart through this law he's given them, he's going to send them into the land of the Canaanites, but he says, you will not be like them nor like the people from whom you came in Egypt. Leviticus 18 verse 3, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. Verses 6 and 7. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Boy, that is exactly an expression of what happened here in the case of Noah. God says, that's what the people of this land do. You will not do such a thing. In Exodus chapter 28 also, remember that God is guiding them to the promised land and he wants them to be separate from, uh, from the peoples. He talks about the priests, and I mentioned this before. The clothing that he gave to the priests already included a tunic that went from their shoulders down to their knees. But just in case they should step up onto the platform of the altar, look at verses 42 and 43 of Exodus 28. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. God expected his priests to be covered. In fact, they're working to cover the sins of Israel. How ironic if they're uncovered, if they look like the result of sin. God took special care to cover up the nakedness of his priests. In the New Testament, we're all priests of God. In the New Testament, when are we not officiating at the altar? Romans 12 says we ought to be throwing ourselves as a living sacrifice on the altar every day. We're working at the altar of our Lord. When is it right then for us to appear naked before the world? When is it right then for us to contemplate the nakedness of others? When is it right for us not to be doing everything we can, going to great lengths as Shem and Japheth did? to cover the nakedness and the exposure this world has given. Well, we understand when we look at all of this context that this is not just an empty story. This is not just something the Spirit just threw in there because it needed some filler. The Spirit doesn't write like men do. We've talked so often about how concise the Spirit is, how we would have said much more. There's an economy of words, and so what is there is important. We saw that these things were written down for our learning. They were, they were uh, written down in the register for us. Romans 15, I think it goes even deeper. Romans 15 and verse 4. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The idea is that not only did these accounts actually happen, but God selected for them to happen the way they did and to register them for us the way he did, that we might learn from the things that went on. God's hand was behind the events themselves and the way they were registered. They're written exactly this way so that we can learn from them. We must carefully consider all of Scripture if we'll be saved from this perverse generation. This is a delicate topic when we talk about 
modesty and indecency. And people will say, well, you can't tell me what I can wear and what I can't wear. You can't give me an exact measure for how long my shorts or my skirt or how low my shirt should be. You're right, I can't. <laughs> what I can challenge you to do is to see where your heart is. Is your heart lined up with what God considers to be nakedness? Or are you more influenced by the world than you're willing to admit and trying to decide if this is still less naked than the world, but naked enough that it brings me pleasure from the kind of looks I get? It makes me feel comfortable because I'm more like the world and not what someone would call a prude. We don't like that kind of persecution that's verbal persecution. As we look at all of this, we must understand sensuality and immorality, dissipation, find their way into our lives as part of this cursed world. We're just a part of things here. We must learn to respond in a holy way. We must have a sober and a serious mind about these things, not a drunken mind that just gives in to the dissipation and says, well, that's just the way things are. <laughs> this is what makes me most comfortable, and if you've got a problem with that, well, the problem is with you. No, it's not. <laughs> If what I'm doing, someone has a problem with, I must at least consider the problem is probably with me. <laughs> Certainly, if I'm trying to serve the Lord, I have to consider that first. How am I contributing to the dissipation that's in the world, to the sensuality, to the immodesty, to the drunkenness of mind that the world carries on? Or am I living in a way that's holy and sober and circumspect, <laughs> contemplating all that's going on so that I can do what God's will is? And that I can bring others to see with clarity what his desire is for us. Will we allow ourselves to be caught up in the dissipation? Or will we work to be filled with the Spirit? I don't know what your situation is this morning. It's my prayer for you that you'll be seeking to do God's will for your life. Like I said, this is a, a delicate topic. I much prefer talking about this in the winter when there's less possibility of people being dressed in some sensual way. But it still happens even in the winter. We need to be careful about the kind of clothing we wear, about the kind of attitude that it displays. When I was younger, uh, a gentleman that was a friend of mine's dad, every time I would come over to visit, he would say, what are you advertising today? And I'd say, what do you mean? And he would read whatever was written on my t-shirt, or he would look at the way my clothes were together, and he would say, you're always advertising something. You may not realize it, but the way you look and the way you carry yourself is an advertisement. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't really have anything to, to gain or lose by telling me that, but it stuck with me, and I believe he's right. What we present to the world is going to tell the world what we really think about Christ, <laughs> where our mind really is. Is our mind set on things above where Christ is, or is our mind set on the things of here, <laughs> these things that are temporary, these things perhaps that bring us some temporary comfort, but in terms of being long-lasting and valuable, there's nothing for us here. If we can help you today to be more contemplative of the Word of God, if you'd like to study with us, if you'd like to become a Christian, if you're willing to uh, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to be baptized for the remission of your sins, we want to help you with that. If you'd like to study more about that, we'd love to do that with you as well. If you are a Christian and you can tell that your mind has not been sober about this issue or any other, that you've given in to the dissipation of this world, we want to help you to repent of that. We want to strengthen your hands that you can walk with Christ and that you can help us as we do that. So we cover transgressions together in love as we honor our Lord to do that. Whatever your need may be, please make it known. We're going to sing this song to encourage your decision.